It's so problematic. I think that COVID made that so much worse. If you've got your phone anywhere, a moment's lull whilst your computer's loading or whilst you're thinking about the next thing, you've you've picked it up without even thinking about it. Mm. So what that means is the more horrible things that we see and we're made aware of, the more we assume that the world's a dangerous, horrible, hostile place. When you say penalties, penalties for those that are producing and circulating that type of content... Welcome to Digital Health Diagnosed, your dose of tech wellbeing, hosted by me, Dr. Rachel Kent, lecturer in digital economy at King's College London and founder of Dr. Digital Health. This week, we're talking about tech addiction. We've got Dr. Sula Wingassen here with me, uh, aka the health psychologist, and we're going to be running through some of my research and your research, which relates to tech addiction. What is it? How does it actually affect us in our everyday lives? And coming up with some strategies and tips to help us have a healthier relationship with our screen time. So Sula, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for um, So you're a health psychologist. Mm-hmm. You are a cognitive behavioral therapist and mindfulness teacher. So we've got a wealth of expertise <laughs> in the room uh, today. Can you just tell us briefly from your experience how you see the relationship between technology, digital tech in particular, influencing your patient's health? There's kind of two dichotomous ways, right? One is a more positive way and one's a more um, problematic way. So in the positive, one of the benefits I think from the pandemic was that there was an uptake in using digital tech for connecting people and for um, including people that otherwise wouldn't have been included. So um, with that, I think as well, there was the proliferation of digital health technologies faster than was before. It was already kind of on an upward trajectory. Mm. So people using things to really check in with themselves, their symptoms, get a better understanding of them, try and feel a sense of empowerment. Um, and and that increasing self-efficacy mm. and um, feeling like they could make a change. Yeah. So that's really empowering. Yeah, so it's really interesting what you were saying about the positive impacts. And I think there was, I did a bit of work with the NHS in the early phases of the pandemic. And I think there was a bit of an assumption that um, there would be quite a lot of resistance to like uh, digital health intervention and tech, Mm. particularly from different generations. So like the older generation not being wanting to do like video consultations um, or yeah, and that kind of resistance, I suppose. Mm. And what was really interesting over the course of the pandemic was how quickly we adopted all this technology. We kind of had to like trial by fire, like implement Mm. it all. The NHS responded in that way. Of course, we had contact tracing rolled out widely and globally. And then actually it was incredibly useful and beneficial. And I think many of us now often prefer the kind of remote, distanced kind of healthcare pathways. Um, And I think one thing I really noticed with what happened with the pandemic is an increasing reliance on social media to access health information Mm. because we couldn't see our clinicians so easily. Um, I think that was something that, yeah, really kind of came to the fore and perhaps we can talk about the potential harms of that later. But yeah, I think it was really interesting to see what positives came out. Um, But then, of course, negatives yeah as well but it's interesting isn't it that uh, assumption that people won't get behind it mm. and then actually what we saw what because i was still working in the nhs around that time all therapy then had to be remote and even you know older generations that you'd think would would not want to see a therapist uh, on an online format they would turn up to their appointments when we offered appointments back face to face you know the majority of people still preferred the accessibility of it being mm. online so you know th- there was definite positives with increasing access and also the f- from a therapeutic point of view um the the clinical momentum that you could get from making sure that people kept attending. Some feel more relaxed having that Mm. screen there rather than being face-to-face. It depends what type of individual you are. But I think in a therapeutic dynamic, particularly for mental health support, that can actually be um, a bit of an enabler to access that support and maybe feel a bit more comfortable because you're doing it in your home rather than having to go and do it in a clinical space, which might feel a bit stiff. Definitely. Um, Yeah. On the downside. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of the things that coming in, in, in in this context in this example for therapy when you're feeling anxious um it can be healthy to you know have that opportunity to habituate see that you coped see it wasn't that bad and your your body kind of rebalances Mm. 
And that's where tech can end up being a bit of a barrier to, you know, doing things that actually would be helpful for you to do because things are more accessible um, via a screen as opposed to going out in the world. And there was a huge thing that I saw, I, I see a lot of clients with IBS, also with panic disorder where um, and social anxiety. So, you know, where the norm was to go out and about and to socialize that obviously got changed massively by mm. the pandemic and then it was so much harder for people to resume that and their baseline for going out and seeing people and putting themselves in uncomfortable situations was much much lower mm. even if you know that that happened with people that didn't have those anxiety disorders you know I'm sure people can all relate to that definitely just not yeah. wanting to go out as much I think we really noticed it when we came back into I called it re-socialization fatigue in my own research so mm. we kind of came back into a social space and it felt alien and mm. we felt like we had to relearn our sociality relearn our skills know how to be around people again and small talk those kind of water cooler moments yeah. like felt very stilted and we felt quite inhibited and I think we had to yeah we adjusted into kind of very isolated lives and then we had to adjust out of it yeah um one thing i want to come to is is the actual definition of tech addiction then so we're focusing today's conversation around tech addiction and, and what happened in the last few years and of course the pandemic was a real shifting point for many of us to go from using maybe a few apps a day to using tens if not mm. maybe hundreds of apps over the course of a week to manage everyday life so it really embedded that technology in our lives in a way that we've never seen before um, and I think we would have gotten there in like a few years but mm. I think the pandemic kind of really accelerated that digital environment that we are all now very much living within and through. Um, so tech addiction then, um, just to kind of, you know, what is it? It's such a buzzword. We hear it thrown around a lot, um, but I want to kind of drill into the definition, you know, drill into the psychological research on this um, so we can understand a little bit more about what's happening. Um, so in my own work, I draw a lot on the American Psychiatric Association's definition, and they say that it kind of falls into three key areas if you're a tech addict. The first one is preoccupation with the behavior. So this would be continually scrolling, um, checking notifications or feeling very compulsively mm. responding to notifications. So like unable to see all those ticks on your phone. You want to, you know, you want to check it immediately as soon as it comes through. Um, performing the behavior to reduce kind of a challenging emotional state. So kind of, I guess, using it as like a distraction, avoiding work, avoiding chores around the house. I'm a big one for scrolling and avoiding cleaning um, and then also withdrawal so if you don't have your phone or you don't have access to your emails that sense of anxiety um, and I think yeah I, that feeling I think many of us can identify with where's my phone if you can't find it or if it's not within arm's reach and I just wondered whether you see these symptoms in your patients who are struggling with their relationship with technology and if these kind of resonate with yeah with what your patients are sharing with you yeah absolutely the one in particular that really stands out is the second one you know feeling um the well not even feeling <laughs> I think that's the problem you know yeah. going to reach for the Numbing. tech before you you've even acknowledged how you feel mm. and <clears throat> what I explore with people is that it's such an automatic thing to have that tendency that you you have to learn intentionally and it takes work to recognize what emotional state is there first yeah, absolutely and i think that can be quite alien because we're not socialized in and you know in anything really about recognizing our emotions even yeah, that's in that's really true isn't it because yeah. i was thinking about the my um, primary mode of therapy so cognitive behavioral therapy and inherent in that model is our thoughts, our behaviors impact our emotions and the emotions are kind of like the outcome. That's not strictly how cognitive behavioral therapy was developed, but very much so in practice for a lot of practitioners, that's how it's seen. So we're always focusing on how do we change the behaviors? How do we change the thoughts in order to impact the emotions? But of course, emotions come out of the blue yeah. um, and they don't always have to be manipulated 
by our behaviors and by our our thoughts sometimes we just want to work directly with them yeah but what that means is there's not really much of a focus on okay let's just understand how we're feeling yeah. and just pause there and actually just having time to identify mm. that and i think when i the work that i've done I, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist but it, it just understanding the kind of mental health and the way in which when we see different social media information we have to self-regulate our response mm. so one thing i always say to my clients is you know if you're following an influencer who's making you feel bad about your life in any way you have to recognize that emotion first. Yeah. And often we kind of slip into this like doom scrolling, almost a form of kind of emotional self-harming of like, mm. oh, you know, these all their lives are amazing. I wish I had this lifestyle, this body, that income, that diet, whatever it might be, all these really aspirational things that are often very materialistic. But the coming back to this is making me feel bad. So mm. I have to do something to stop that happening. And what I always say is just unfollow that person. Yeah. You know, we don't need to have that digital noise. Yeah. And toxicity um i've gone off piece a little bit but yeah i think it's kind of training or recognizing those neural pathways of like where's my brain going how do yeah. i think and feel about this type of content or or am i just using scrolling as a pacifier as a numbing right. tool exactly yeah and that's where it's tricky isn't it because often that is the intention because you do get that dopamine hit yeah. of seeing a notification or seeing something slightly new and then you don't know what's going to happen next. So then you can end up feeling worse for being on social media because of seeing things that make you feel negative comparisons yeah. or just by nature, it's it's empty stimulation a lot of the time. Yeah. So then you don't, it, that's a really hard feeling I think to recognize. So then you're you're just doing that basic almost biological thing of scrolling yeah. to, to get well, more dopamine of dopamine feels good so it's yeah. like I don't know we lean into that more don't exactly. we it's kind of easier to manage that emotional response should, should we just pause on dopamine mm. because it's such a fascinating again it's a word that is now much more widely used yeah. in kind of press and media and I think most members like most listeners or member of the public now would be like oh yeah those dopamine kicks I think we're kind mm -hmm. of familiar with though of why social media you know is so addictive um so it's a neurotransmitter, dopamine, gets released in the brain when we are expecting a reward. Mm. And then we get a flood of dopamine, which reinforces a craving for something enjoyable. So whether that's like a tasty meal, um, uh, a drug or alcohol or mm -hmm. something like that, or also maybe a funny TikTok mm -hmm. video. Um, and I was reading some really interesting, very new research that's coming out about TikTok now about how how intelligent the algorithm is first and foremost because it's so incredibly well tailored to our tastes and preferences the content we see we feeds more and more content which really does personalize your experience and you're just getting fed content which really stimulates you and you're getting all those dopamine kicks um, but it's apparently, uh, well, not only the fastest growing social media platform of all time, it's also now the most addictive. So you've got the TikTok reels that are happening so frequently, the kind of 15 to 30 seconds. Mm. And because they're so well tailored to your preferences, they're increasingly difficult to get off, mm. which is why TikTok is so compared to, say, YouTube or even Instagram, because of the intelligent algorithm. This is why TikTok has kind of taken off mm. in the way that it has, basically. Um, I mean, as a psychologist, what's your take on how you can <laughs> live in a way where you can identify those kind of dopamine kicks but maybe try and assert some boundaries or try and detach yourself from the device in some way I mean it, it's so difficult because I think it, it does start with breaking up the automaticity of reaching for it mm. And that in itself is really difficult, right? Because if you've got your phone anywhere, a moment's lull whilst your computer's loading or whilst you're thinking about the next thing, you've you've picked it up without even thinking about it. Mm. So there's practical barriers that I think we need to put in place so that we can become a bit more intentional. So there are uh, apps like OneSec where it interrupts you getting onto that social media and you can choose your interruption so it can be take a breath and you have to watch the screen go up and down oh, and that's breathe quite clever. it's really good yeah. or you can journal or it asks you your intention for going on there there's a free version a paid version um but that then interrupts the habit right but even if you, if you don't want to use another app for an app you know putting your phone away somewhere in those moments where you're liable to just pick it up mindlessly mm. and then that gives you a bit of an opportunity to then decide, okay, I'm picking up to go on social media or to use this app. 
And yes, I do want to do this. But that is that in itself is going to be a process that you have to build yeah. that intentionality of it. And then when you're on there, having a bit of a practice, you don't have to do this every time you're on social media, but if you do this like once a day, it starts to filter through automatically of, okay, how am I feeling now? Depending on how long you go on social media yeah. for and just having that mini check-in, am I feeling better? Am I feeling worse? Am I feeling like stimulated, excited? Yeah. And 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 then use that as your heuristic to, to carry on or get off. And then if you really wanted to explore a little bit more, just a bit of journaling or jotting down reflections afterwards like what was that experience like and there's nothing like bringing that conscious intentionality to an experience that you do automatically to really change that experience going forwards so it's not that you have to do that every time you use social yeah. media for the foreseeable but just even two weeks will then change how your brain's responding yeah. a little bit when you're doing that behavior that's a really good point that's some really good advice because i think also we place so much pressure on ourselves with our screen time with the mm. tech addiction. I think there's quite a lot of shame and guilt yeah. around, oh, I'm not managing my devices too much or I'm not present enough in my life with yeah. my kids or my friends or my family or my work or whatever it is. And I think just trying and trying to assert those boundaries. And if you do it one out of every five times, that's still great. Mm. And not kind of being exactly. so hard on yourself to be like, I've got to do it every time in that perfect way. Because yeah. one thing I always say to my clients and something that I really, I'm looking a little bit more into my research is understanding the tech behind it and recognizing that they are designed this way. They mm -hmm. are designed to be addictive, mm -hmm. right? It's called choice architecture. So it's the way in which uh, choices are presented to us on an application to foreclose decisions to like lead us to you know a TikTok reel and then another reel and then the algorithm learns your tastes and preferences and knows what you like and it makes it really really difficult to get off from and I think it's really really important to recognize that there are design designs in place um, which make it difficult to get off yeah. and that it's not always about, you know, self-regulation or discipline or, you know, I'm really bad because I'm on my phone all the time. Actually, they're designed to be addictive. Yeah. They're designed to keep our attention because that's how they make money. That's yeah. how platform capitalism works. Um, and yeah, ultimately that is something that I really try and kind of reinforce with in my work is to try and be non-judgmental about the relationship yeah. we have with technology because we can only do our best. And if something is designed to grab your attention all the time, to try and detach from that is a huge undertaking exactly um yeah so one thing that i really well one thing i really try and stress to my clients is to remove that judgment and pressure that we place on ourselves because ultimately the technology is designed to be addictive and i just want to pause for a moment and talk a little bit about the kind of techie side mm. of things um so it's called choice architecture basically the reason why these devices are so addictive why we struggle to get off them um and ultimately what they do is they shape our decision making that's really what a choice architect does it presents different options to you but it pushes certain outcomes mm. so this is why recommendation algorithms and targeted advertising so stuff we see on amazon or even reels um, on instagram or tiktok is so um attention grabbing because it's so well tailored mm. to our personal tastes and our personal preferences um and so there's two key ways bear with me on the techie side for a moment two key ways that this happens so one is behavioral economics and this is ultimately about how the technology is created to make money from our behavior essentially so this idea that we are the product because we're giving up all this personal data that's the data that tech companies and app designers and developers and data mining third parties will make money from and ultimately that means that all of these companies want to keep us on these platforms for as long as possible whether it's amazon tiktok instagram whatever any brand housing, um, any digital habit, because they can monetize that attention through those different data. And then secondly, it's the personalization. So you've got behavioral economics and you've got personalization and the personalization and they work together. And so if everything is so beautifully tailored to mm. your interests and preferences, and then the design of the application is uh, putting, keeping your attention sustained um, because it's giving you all the stuff that you love and keeping you on there. Like it's just almost impossible yeah. to kind of detach from that. And I think it's really important to remember that 
we are it's our attention has been grabbed and monetized and mined but the devices are making us do that and so we have to kind of cut ourselves a bit of slack i think and recognize that no amount of self-discipline or regulation can disrupt that compulsive or addictive cycle um and I just wondered whether your patients had had any similar experiences or any of this kind of side of things, whether that had come through any of your work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point, right, that we are having a biological reaction. You know, yeah. our brain chemistry and processing has been altered by by intention through these companies, right? And, and if we were in a different situation if we were in a really noisy room and there was lots of you know stimulating things going on and a baby crying in the corner our, our physiology would be disrupted in a particular way and, and it would be futile to judge yourself against stressed about that because it's just happening That's on really a, a very point. biochemical level mm. and it it's different but the same thing right with with technology it's it's um not necessarily having that uh, stress response, although it can do it also, but it's changing how your brain's responding. And shame never helps any motivation. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> we think yeah. it does because it comes out quite organically, but yeah. it only ever makes us feel worse. And then we feel less able to do the the behavior that we want to do um it just yeah it's harder to regulate from that place and definitely you know my clients <laughs> that will be an issue that comes up time and time the again. shame aspect the, the of the shame it. aspect yeah. and telling themselves off for for something that you know is quite habitual or you know something that's come up very organically um and we have to explore really consciously what does that do you know adding that layer on top of mm. i shouldn't have done that this is um not helping me i should know better how do you feel how able do you feel to step back from yeah. that does shame like make you so if you're, you're experiencing this and then you feel shameful about being unable to switch off from your devices or you know be more present or whatever your kind of motivation is to try and assert a different kind of boundary with your tech if you then feel unable to do so and then you feel shame does shame potentially then pull you back into this oh I, I i can't get off it so whatever i'm just going to keep scrolling. exactly is that what happens exactly on a on an emotional level which then feeds into like a, a physiological reaction we we don't tolerate shame well so it can activate our uh, autonomic nervous system so we feel more stressed and when okay. we feel more stressed we have less access to our rational kind of intentional brain uh, and thinking modes so then we default on you know heuristic things and so that will be often to numb out or to distract and often when you say heuristic friend. things is that kind of habitual response exactly yeah. just how we feel and yeah. you know what's done as a matter of rote just from repetition over and over again yeah um, rather than you know what we might have in mind as the best idea um, that's really interesting so arguably if you're struggling with your tech your screen time you feel shameful you then kind of think oh well whatever i'm just going to go back to it and then but that also becomes your habitual response exactly. and your hur heuristic as well potentially exactly. in a kind of extreme case and it's like a, a cycle it's yeah. like the binge eating cycle you know people don't want to binge eat they judge themselves terribly for it then they get an overwhelming and emotional sense and binge eating is the way that they would numb or soothe they do that they feel better for for a bit and then they start to feel shameful mm. and then they binge eat again and it's the same with tech addiction you you do it to numb and then you feel bad and kind of like oh i've wasted time or i you know i wasn't present or whatever the many judgments could be mm. feel anxious or shame or you know a whole range of difficult emotions potentially and then you want to numb out so you you know yeah. pick up your phone again yeah and then you've got the dopamine there giving you that lovely mm. kick when you go back on exactly. so even if it's very temporary it's mm. still that nice feeling just for a moment absolutely i want to um think a little bit more about like the distractions in our everyday lives with when it comes to tech addiction um and how that actually impacts us because in my work I've seen so much, well, there's kind of a couple of different areas that I've seen the distractions really impacting our ability to kind of live our everyday lives, mm. you know, in a way that we would want to have less time on our phones or screens or just be a bit more present. And I think the main one is the distraction impacting concentration. Yeah. And as a lecturer um, and as somebody that works, <laughs> you know, with private clients, you know, this is the, how can I 
you know, if some people even just having a conversation necessarily, or you're going out for dinner with a friend, or you know, notifications coming in, or students being on their devices, or that feeling of like, oh, I just want to check my phone. That continual distraction that's going on in your brain that is just so present and there for all of us. I think. Mm. Um, I just wondered whether you had any kind of tips, or you see that in your patients, or any kind of tips for managing that because it's such a huge battle. I think for a lot of us, it is. It is. And I'm not 100% familiar with the research, but I do think that I read something about the the more distractible, the more distracted we are. So the more we kind of give in to those distractions mm-hmm. and the more distractible we are and how algorithms like TikTok and that short form content then make it really hard for us to maintain concentration. So again, on that kind of physiological level, yeah. we're inadvertently training ourselves not to be able to concentrate for long periods wow, of time. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so, I mean, that can be a really strong motivation for some people to like, you know, make a change. But yeah. for other people, it can just increase more fear. Yeah. And then we know what happens when you feel like fearful, fearful and anxious. Fearful and shameful <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I was reading about AI and cognitive degeneration mm in the sense of like the way in which life is so automated now. And 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 when we're talking about AI, I'm just talking about like predictive text, yeah. city mapper, you know, all of these things that make our life more convenient. It's yeah. not kind of this out there thing. And I was reading something about how cognitively, and I don't know whether this this is something that you kind of know much about, um, because I only know a little bit, but it, that it kind of reduces our cognitive ability for our working memory in particular. Mm, mm-hmm. So how to spell words or how to navigate around the cities, around exactly. London, for example. Like this morning, you know, I've come to the studio many times before, but I still get my city mapper yeah. out just to kind of, I don't know, it's just there as like an automated response. Yeah. And apparently that really impacts our working memory. Um, so remembering routes and yeah, texting and stuff like that. So yeah, I just wondered whether you... Yeah. That was right. and Absolutely. Because, you know, in the old days when black cab drivers didn't have like Google Maps or Waze or whatever, their brains would be altered um, because they would have an internalized map of London. And I didn't know that. Now right. it would be different, I'm yeah. sure, because that map's not internalized. And what we know, you know, working memory is so crucial to confine memories to the long term that we can then recall them spontaneously without like prompts of recognition. Mm. And if that working memory is impaired, then it's harder for us to create long-term memory. So it makes sense that it would have an impact on, you know, long-term cognitive degeneration. But even in the short term, our working memory is a process where we're able to hold different bits of information, limited bits of information at the same time, and then kind of work out how we want to use them. And, and then with enough repetition, we can store that for later but that also speaks to then our ability to focus our attention right and even things like mental arithmetic you have to hold like a couple of different numbers in Mm. mind at the same time and then manipulate them at the same time if our yeah if we're just always getting a calculator out we're not practicing that ability to do those things and so then we're less able to do those things and that will have an impact you know on just our ability to have that attentional focus for multiple things yeah. at the same time. I don't know if this is the same thing, but I've really noticed that I'm really bad at writing now because I'm always on my <laughs> yeah. computer. Like I genuinely like struggle with like when I'm writing a birthday card or something. Yeah. Like that's something that I'm like, wow, my that muscle memory, dexterity, or what, de- yeah. yeah, dexterity has like definitely been lost a little bit. And I used to always love writing loads. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's just one of those things that I kind of was like, oh wow, I need to make sure I do write like actually with a pen rather than yeah. always on my laptop. Um, it is kind of like use it or lose it with your brain to yeah. some degree isn't it you have to be flexing those muscles and you don't that doesn't mean you always have to do your calculations by hand or always have to get your a to z out instead of using google maps you know we can embrace some of the automations but i think we also have to be aware that if everything's completely automated and we're not creating moments where we're really flexing our intentionality and problem solving skills yeah. and bearing with the discomfort that means reallocating our attention to different areas 
that will be impeded in the long term and it has a massive impact for for everything you know for our health for our concentration for our ability to emotionally regulate for our ability to have connective experiences there's nothing worse than being in a restaurant and you're talking to someone and you can see their eyes glaze over and they're like where have they gone and i swear that never used to happen as no. much but now yeah, it yeah, does yeah. and they're probably thinking about oh my phone or <laughs> i want to i want to pick up my phone. <laughs> like, it might yeah. not even be that it might be something else but because we're yeah. so used to or it's our, vibrating our in your pocket and you can feel it yeah. and you're like, i know i've got some i've got a text or a yeah. notification i want to check what is it and exactly that kind of anticipatory anxiety as well i think it yeah. puts us in it might be a bit extreme to say a permanent state of fight <laughs> or flight but you're kind of like yeah. slightly always kind of anticipating communication or some kind of information that might disrupt or distract you from what's happening in that present moment and the other thing about that is the the expectations on being available all the yeah. time that does have a big impact on 100%. our on our stress levels and our ability to relax and if you hold real high sense of responsibility or you know it's important to make sure other people are happy with me and that I don't let people down then you're much more likely to be like, I do need to respond to that text quite quickly because otherwise X, Y, and Z, you yeah. know, they'll think that I'm not happy with them or they'll, you know, um, they'll be needing the answer. Yeah. Uh, but then what that does is it means that any potential notification you it's get, the media you have to be, culture, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, it's so problematic. I think that COVID made that so much worse. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I just think <laughs> that like, because we were all at home largely, uh, those of us that were fortunate enough to work from home, uh, most of the time, it just meant that like, where else could you be? Yeah, And just exactly. not being available, it was like you had to get back. And we already existed within that always on, always available culture before, of course. But yeah. I think it exacerbated it in such a way. And I feel like I've had to unlearn that and mm. really... Um, and it's actually, there's some really interesting research now coming out that I read, and I was talking to my students about it yesterday, actually, about this anticipatory anxiety that I just mentioned. So the way in which when you are scrolling or just using your phone, for example, and if you're lying in bed before um, you go to sleep, you're always expecting some kind of information. You're mm -hmm. always expecting, you know, either it could be social media, it could be a WhatsApp, it could be a work email. And that puts you in a kind of heightened state of kind of like uh, attention and vigilance. Yeah, And so... Even if you're like watching reels to distract or a YouTube video for information, or maybe you're watching Netflix on your phone, you're still getting information coming through overlapping that. And so it puts your brain in that really alert state. And it's just such a difficult space to be in when you've got everything all in one space, whether it's a laptop or a phone or a tablet or whatever it is. And I think it's really important to recognize that stress response in our bodies when we are expecting ourselves to respond mm. or the fear or FOMO that might come from not responding or yeah. not uh, reading those messages. Um, and I think COVID has got a lot to answer for on on making that even worse for us to manage. Yeah. And I, one tip that I, I do is I always stick my phone on airplane kind of before I go to bed for mm -hmm. at least an hour so that I remove that anticipatory anxiety of like, oh, what is it now? Or work or mm. whatever, life, family, like what's happened? Or, And I think that's the way to kind of regulate myself so I kind of step away emotionally and mentally from the potential of yeah. being contacted I suppose it's kind of that barrier and my family know I'm not available from whatever yeah. time and yeah that's so interesting that research on yeah. the anticipatory anxiety because it's not something that we're you know aware of necessarily yeah. but it's happening just by virtue of the phone yeah 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 <laughs> being contactable absolutely I think it would be really useful to talk a little bit about what's happening in the brain when we have an addiction. Um, and today we're talking about tech addiction. Um, and from my understanding, from my research with addiction, it often means that uh, everyday pleasures no longer excite us because they don't provide as much dopamine mm. as, say, for example, if we're like scrolling continuously or engaging kind of with different types of content. Um, or we have to try and keep doing that behavior to kind of get those same dopamine kicks. Yeah. So kind of like repeating. Um, so it kind of means that those scrolling practices have become like quite irreplaceable. Yeah. Um, um, I wondered from a psycho like from a psychologist perspective, um, whether this resonates. Is, is that the kind of behaviors you see with your patients? Yeah, exactly. That it the behavior gets automated in order to fill some emotional deficit, right? Or, or experiential deficit. But because it's automated, again, there's no intentionality. It's just there to try and feel different and feel improved from now without a real check-in about 
what the deficit is now. Yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking, just going briefly back to TikTok, um, because it's just such a wild beast mm-hmm. <laughs> of an example. Um, and because the algorithm is so interest-based and we've never had a social media platform quite like it before, I think we're kind of living through this social experiment mm. of like, how addictive can it get? How can we assert boundaries? Is that even possible? How yeah. intelligent can the algorithm get? Because it is highly, highly uh, personalized, as I mentioned earlier. Um and I think with personalization, we could on the one hand be like, oh, it's great because it's just feeding me stuff that's really useful, really beneficial. Um, it's really interesting. It might affirm my political views. It might affirm kind of my interests or hobbies. I might be watching stuff that is educational or interesting to me. It's not just kind of, you know, kind of um, complete nonsense or mm-hmm. just kind of distracting uh, information. So on the one hand, it can be kind of a lot of fun and be very educational and helpful. And it might, you end up, might end up on a rabbit hole that's really kind of beneficial um, and quite interesting, or you might learn about something new. But recently I've been speaking to particularly a lot of my students who might end up on a rabbit hole, which might take them somewhere quite horrible. And mm. they might see lots of content, which is either uh, kind of damaging, uh, toxic, or something that might be very harmful for your mental health, or stuff that's quite traumatic. Um, and I think, yeah, I just wondered what your take was on this type of content, and whether, you know, what you think we should be doing about protecting ourselves, or whether it's the tech companies that need to be protecting us from the potential for seeing damaging or harmful content. Because, yeah, I mean, there are lots of studies showing that we're more affected by seeing images and videos it you know more directly taps into our emotional brain quote unquote um so that we feel more emotionally affected right and then that changes you know you know our our whole affective state and of course then that's going to inform how we're thinking about things you know uh what we take away from that, how we're appraising things. So for example, if we are seeing lots of horrors of war, which is very relevant at the moment, we are going to feel very upset about that, distressed about that. And that can feed lots of different potential thought processes for a lot of my clients at the moment. They're, you know, they have their own struggles, but their appraisal is, but this is 10 times worse. So I'm a selfish person for indulging in my own difficulties, Mm. which then of course leads into layers of, you know, shame and difficulty and, you know, emotional turmoil, just as one example. So we... Again, we we want to protect ourselves from this, but also there is a duty of these companies that are, you know, hosting all of this content. And there is a, a an ethical and a moral question of what's the function and what's the use of everybody seeing all of this stuff yeah. all of the time? And does it have to be completely choiceless? Yeah. Because it often is. And it's different on different platforms. But for example, my husband is on what's now X. Yeah. Um, I've not been on there for a long time, but he'll be scrolling and he's interested in all sorts of techie stuff. But then he'll just be shown a video of something horrific, you know, somebody dying. Yeah, Twitter or X, whatever it is now. <laughs> but yeah, it's terrible for that. Yeah. Like you really, you can be caught really off guard and say you're on your way to work or, you ha- yeah. or you've picked your phone up midway through a meal and you should, <laughs> you know, and it like disrupts you. Absolutely. And it sends you the huge emotional curveball that you have to manage. And every single time he's seen one of those videos, he's, tick that option of don't show me this or yeah. mute or whatever the, the option is on X. And he still gets shown it all of the time. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so, you know, there is a, a a duty of companies to make sure that something does change. I mean, and it shouldn't take, I, I, don't, I don't really think there's a benefit in just seeing random, shocking, horrific things yeah. um, with no context. I don't think there's any benefit of that no. for anybody. Well, the benefit, I would argue, from... Uh, kind of digital health perspective is that you get the clicks you get Mm -hmm. the views so it's being monetized your attention is capital your attention is money and therefore those who are creating circulating the content and the platforms which disseminate it and share it Mm -hmm. they're the ones making money in that space and as you say if it's something that's traumatic or emotionally you know um, shocking then you're more likely to sustain that's more likely to sustain your attention if that's what you're I'm understanding what you're saying correctly and you'll Um, probably carry on scrolling to try and like shake that off get away from it yeah 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 (laughs) and you'll stay on there for longer because that is the ease rather than kind of having a moment of going oh god that was awful it's like oh quick like you know let's distract further and um i guess the other thing about this is when we are seeing all of this horrible stuff which permeates in 
at the moment, you know, the big thing is being confronted with all the atrocities going on in Gaza. Yeah. And um, what that does is it infiltrates this cognitive bias that is called mean world syndrome. Okay. And what that means is the more horrible things that we see and we're made aware of, the more we assume that the world's a dangerous, horrible, hostile place and other people are, you know, unfeeling, unempathetic people. And and that's not just a social media problem. You know, we see that yeah. in our tabloids and lots of other media, but it is definitely perpetuated. There's something that feels still much more organic about social media. Mm. So it's much more of a pervasive uh, persuasive thing for us to then think oh gosh we live in a really dangerous time and a dangerous world and people are unfeeling and then that has a big impact on not just how you feel and your mental health but also how you relate to your fellow humans yeah um and you're much likely to much more likely to be kind of cautious skeptical um yeah feel vulnerable in other people's yeah. company so it really has a big disconnecting effects yeah. on on the ground you know whereas i'm all for raising awareness of terrible things that are happening but we have to think how what is the cost and benefit of yeah. being confronted with all of that imagery all yeah, of the time that's i mean it's horrible but it's really interesting to hear about because i think we feel it mm. don't we all of us right now when we feel what's going on we're very aware of it but it's that kind of underlying and i guess it's useful to articulate those underlying differences and disassociative or disconnecting mm. uh things that are happening um and actually i spoke to my therapist about this uh last week when i was having a complete moment of just like god it's just all so awful yeah. And she was like, conflict breeds conflict. And then if you throw a social media algorithm into that space, yeah. um, which then echo chamber feeds you continuous content, yeah. the emotional state that will put you in and then your inability to get off the screen is potentially very harmful and very detrimental for our mental Definitely. health. Um, and as you say, yeah, that kind of very dystopian way of looking at the world, um, I can well understand why that happens. That's, yeah, really shocking. Um, one more thing I wanted to speak about um, um, was also just um, just a pivot away um, to think a little bit about the decreased face-to-face -face interaction that we have now from the tech saturation and addiction um, in our everyday lives. And obviously COVID exacerbated that. And I'd just love to get, you know, from your expertise, um, what's this doing to our brain when we're spending, you know, more time on a device than we are face-to-face -face with people? Because we are social beings, right? We mm. need community and sociality. Can you just explain a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, I guess from again just a biological point of view we're we're changing our dispersion of neurotransmitters you know that we're experiencing so more dopamine less potential oxytocin and serotonin okay. when we're in the company of people we're we're much more likely to feel connected in a in a real way in a real sense if that feels safe and pleasurable of course yeah. as opposed to if we're communicating with them via text medium on on a social media platform um but then there's so many other additional things that go into being physically with somebody from like the subtleties of body language and being mirroring, able, uh, mirroring and, yeah. and being able to kind of pat someone on the shoulder give someone a hug those real subtle things again have a really physiological difference in our experience and, yeah. and we're much more likely to feel more connected with people for those things as opposed to when we're seeing them through a screen and we can cognitively get ourselves in a bind because we're like oh, well I just spoke to such and such yesterday on the phone why would I go and grab a coffee we've said all we need to say yeah but one it's of the like update culture exactly. isn't it oh, we've up I've caught up <laughs> we don't need to chat for a few weeks or something it's just exactly. it's a bizarre kind of way to quantify sociality isn't it I isn't think. it but we don't really think about it about the fact that that is a bizarre way That's because what we're it's doing. not I don't see my friend to be like tell me all the news and then I'm good and I'm gone. It's like, yeah. we have a nice time. We chat, we, you know, come up with stuff that, we, you know, arguably it doesn't really matter if we talk about it or not, but it's yeah. just a nice process. And it's the interaction that you're thriving exactly. off, not just the content of what you're talking about. And the companionship of yeah. being with somebody, that that's the thing that makes us feel connected, stimulates that oxytocin as opposed to um, necessarily the content of what we're saying, which I think can often be lost. Um, and also what people don't talk about is the fact that sometimes our digital digital connection with people 
<laughs> changes our in-person um, relationship with people yeah. because I'm a very different person when I type because I hate texting and I, I, my, so I don't spend a lot of time trying to get my voice across in text form because it's a nuisance to me texting. Isn't it interesting how people are so different on that front? Because <laughs> I've got some friends that are really expressive on, over text and very different ways mm. to other friends that are just very like punctual and like, exactly. uh, you know, that just that's the information and that's all you're getting. And, and that, yeah, and that's yeah. me. I mean, I, I think that's definitely changed over the years, but now because we are so inundated with tech and I'm always speaking with people in my clinic, you know, online, I have very little time for a text message communication because I know that I feel so much more connected to people in person. But if I just reply, you know, one liners, somebody else might feel completely rejected. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, I don't really want to see Sula because she didn't make me feel so good, you know, on I'm Thursday go even longer I'm without seeing <laughs> yeah. them. But that does yeah. happen. Or, yeah. you know, when there's these family debates in um, WhatsApp groups and it gets a bit uh, tense, those kinds of things. Don't talk about politics. <laughs> Don't mention Everybody politics. Everybody can relate to because yeah, you go away <laughs> feeling pissed off with people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And then when you see them, you're not like, oh, I can't wait to see whoever. Um, but if you were having that debate in person, yeah. you'd be able to break up with a little laugh or Hopefully. let me just get you a drink. <laughs> or, yeah, potentially. But, you know, it does, yeah. it, it makes a massive um, difference in your ability to cut that tension. Yeah. So sometimes those conversations on online mediums could also make us feel yeah. I s disconnected. Kind of see tips. I would say it like, like disembodied data, isn't it? It's like <laughs> our little like, but which sometimes it's that's fine, and it's like you know you don't take offence. But sometimes if you're feeling a bit sensitive mm. or you've had a you know rubbish day, you might take it in the wrong way. And there's Absolutely. just you can't encapsulate, you know. And, th and this is also when it comes to like digital health. I often think about we often use these digital tools to kind of try and represent ourselves in certain ways, and it is limiting, and it's yeah. not a true depiction of who we are. And I think this is why particularly with tech addiction if we think about the ways in which we follow influencers for whatever lifestyle guidance health guidance you know we're only seeing slices of their lives yeah. you know we can't be too comparative about well my life doesn't look like that because no one's life looks like an instagram reel yeah. 24 7 and i think it's always really important to keep that in mind so you mentioned earlier about um kind of platforms needing to be held accountable. Can you explain a little bit more about what you meant by that when it comes to like harmful content or the way in which it might be impacting our mental health in particular? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because what's the line between us being able to be aware of how we're feeling when we're on it versus what is the platform's responsibility for that. Mm. There's going to be such individual things that are triggering or that, you know, mix with our own personal circumstances that make it difficult for us emotionally but there are clear things that are going to be harmful for mental health so seeing self-harm content yeah. seeing stuff that promotes uh, negative eating behaviors you know all of that kind of stuff violence of course yeah so there needs to be some clear penalties I think as well for okay um not just the accounts putting that out but perhaps also the platforms for allowing that to be out because people can really go down rabbit holes. When you say penalties, penalties for those that are producing and circulating that type of content or penalties for the platforms? Both. Both, Both okay. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it needs to be taken seriously, right? Yeah. And at the moment, it's kind of like, well, anybody can go on social media and it's their responsibility. Yeah, I call it the Wild West. Mm. Like, you know, you don't know what type of content's going to come through. And yes, mm. you've got your algorithm that is, you know, mine's mainly just dogs. <laughs> <laughs> That's mainly my algorithm. But occasionally you will get a curveball and different platforms are different. Mm. Um, and I think that there has to be regulation, doesn't there? And Absolutely. I, I haven't thought about penalties before, but I think that's a very good I point. mean, it, they'll never do it, will they? But it <laughs> would be great. <laughs> but it's something that, yeah, certainly should be a part of the conversation. Um, okay, I think let's kind of focus on some tips and mm -hmm. strategies. Um, we've discussed, you know, what tech addiction is and, you know, how dopamine actually works. And I think it's useful to kind of recognise that the platforms are designed that way and dopamine is there to kind of kick us back into going back on online. And also I think the impact on our mental health, that kind of habitual, heuristic um automated response that you mm. mentioned was really, really useful and helpful to think about. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be really useful if you could share a couple of tips with the listeners. How can we stop this happening? I know that's a huge <laughs> question, um, but yeah. I would divide it up into two two approaches. One is a real practical habit interrupter. So making it 
more difficult to reach for the automatic behavior. Without that, the other stuff we're not going to be able to access. So if that means putting your phone somewhere else so that you have to consciously make the decision to pick it up, you know, in the middle of a working day or whenever it might be, you might have particular periods where it's problematic or using uh, habit interrupters for digital habits. Like I use this one called One Sec and there is a free version. Yeah. Um, so I think that needs to be in place for anything else because otherwise our brain just defaults and we don't even realize we're doing it. There'd be so many times people will have been on their phone for five minutes and be like, oh, I only came on here to check the weather. And You don't I'm realize on... how long you're on it for and time exactly. just goes. Exactly. Yeah. So we need that practical interrupter. But then on the more, I guess, psychological side, we want to familiarize ourselves with our internal states that are happening prior to app use um, and during app use so that we can a recognize it better without the need of practical uh, interrupters but also so that we can work out is there a better way of regulating than using my phone mm. and and off the back of that, there might be a reflective exercise that you do, which is what do I gain from regulating by picking up my phone every time I feel bored or sad or a little bit anxious and anticipatory? How does that get in the way of yeah. things that are meaningful to me? And what would the alternative look like? And how would that shape my life in the way that I might prefer it to be shaped? And really connecting with that motivation sense practically yeah. and reminding yourself of it so you have to link all three up right you're constantly checking in with doing the thing by accident habitually how you're feeling and then what you would wish to be doing instead and through those three things you can rewire your neural pathways essentially but it takes repetition and effort and yeah. that is uncomfortable as we're doing it definitely <laughs> it's uncomfortable but it's also <laughs> like I guess the perspective thank you that was really helpful this perspective of like if just try it every now and mm. again and if you don't have to do it all the exactly, time but just time. start the try isn't mm -hmm. it trying process uh, but that's really really interesting um I've got one tip mm. that I kind of recommend and I try adopt myself which I call it like physically breaking up with your device yeah. so it's kind of a way to look at your digital tools whether it's your phone your laptop your tablet even your wearable you know anything that you've got on your body which is or you're having in your daily life which is a bit of an extension of self is thinking of it as not attached to you because I think we so mm. see these tools as like extensions of our identity or personality or it's such a facilitator for so much and it's just about kind of reframing that perspective and thinking I need to detach mm -hmm. and physically break up with it mentally. And then also try and, as you said earlier, put those physical um, disruptions in place. So like putting your phone in another room, for example, or in a drawer or sticking it on airplane mode so that you don't get those notifications when you're hanging out with friends or yeah. before you're switching off, um, before you go to bed. So yeah, I just kind of like break up with your devices, try and detach a little bit because I think we've all got attachment problems with yeah, our devices. I agree. I think it's really hard to kind of let go of that. And I think if you use that breaking up with your phone or device in particular contexts that uh, connect you better with your values. So mm. I would never want to pick up my phone really when I'm out to dinner with somebody. Yeah. But if it's on the table, I'm more likely to. If you can see it, exactly. if you hear it as well, if it's buzzing or if you've got, yeah. So, you know, having those kind of markers that are distinct moments where like, this is definitely breaking up with my phone territory yeah. for this however long the meal is or when um yeah when I've got people over to visit or whatever it would be yeah okay fantastic Sula thank you so much for being thank here you. thank you thank you for listening to Digital Health Diagnosed your dose of tech well-being we're here to help you have a healthier relationship with your digital tools and your technologies please follow us and subscribe across all the usual channels